Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Mr. Paul Brandis. He is an independent member of the White House Press Corps, founder of the Twitter page at West Ring Report, historical author, and more. He is here to discuss his first and latest book, Under This Roof, The White House and the Presidency, 21 Presidents, 21 Rooms, 21 Inside Stories. You'll hear Paul discuss his impressive career working inside the White House, suggest how the growth of the White House reflects the goals of a nation, and even reveal how a first lady served as acting president for a time. And now, Mr. Brandis and Dr. Bradburn. Hello everyone, this is Doug Bradburn at the Washington Library here at Mount Vernon, and I'm delighted to have today with me in my office, Paul Brandis, who is an award-winning independent member of the White House Press Corps, founded West Wing Reports, in 2009 and tonight at the library he's going to speak on his new book Under This Roof the White House and the Presidency. Uh, Paul welcome. Thank you. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about yourself many of the people I have through here are historians and I understand their tra trajectories because I was one where you go to graduate school and you get a PhD in history and you're out there uh, as a professor or trying to be a professor uh, how, talk a little bit about your trajectory. How did you get to the point where you wanted to write uh, a history book? Well, as a member of the White House Press Corps, when you go in to work in the White House uh, every day, you're, you're enveloped by this mm. sense of history whenever you go in there. And when you go into a place like the East Room, for example, mm. uh, which I know you've been into, you go and you stand in the middle of the room and you think, oh my gosh, this is where the coffins of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy lay and, mm. and, and things like that. On kind of a lighter note, Susan Ford had her high school prom there and Amy Carter roller skated and the Gerald Ford was sworn in there after mm. Nixon. In other words, just the, the history mm. is so colorful and it stretches back so far and I just thought the history is so interesting. Mm. It's so amazing that I wanted to find a way to tell these stories, and mm. a lot of people know me for my Twitter account. Mm. It's handled at West Wing Report, and one thing that I wanted to do to sort of differentiate myself from the other people in the press corps was I started tweeting about history mm. on a daily basis on this mm. day in 1812. James Madison did yeah the OTDs yeah OTDs yeah and. And it turned out that that began to get quite a following, more so, in fact, than even just the regular White House reporting, mm -hmm. because everybody was doing that. Mm -hmm. So the daily history tweets really were sort of a differentiator in terms of mm -hmm. what everyone else was doing. When did you start doing that? The I started doing that pretty quickly, 2009 or okay. so. And yeah. the reason why I started to do that, by the way, just as an aside, is I came to the conclusion that uh, that 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 people, uh, the broader context, mm. 
that history provides, mm. I think, made it easier, makes it easier, rather, to understand current events. That's a great yeah, point of view. Yeah. Because the people are always asking, well, how can we make history relevant? How can we make history relevant? And, and one of the things I, I often suggest is, that how do you understand the present at all if you don't have any sense of the past? It's, a, it's, it's, it's incredibly relevant. I mean, it's, it's essential. It really is, and 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 one reason that, that sort of that prompted me to do that mm. is I would often hear comments on call-in shows and uh, mm. websites and things that people would say, "Well, it's never been this bad, and we're going through, uh, you know, we've never been through uh, times like we have today." I'm like, "Well, you don't know your history <laughs> because we've been through a lot yeah. worse than yeah. the, the, last, the the downturn we had in no way. Now that was that was that was bad." But it wasn't the Great Depression, yeah. and when people say we've never been this divided, I said, "Well, Civil War ring a bell, mm. you know." So the history is useful in putting things in a broader context. Well, uh, that's that's fascinating. One of the things that struck me about your book when I uh, dipped into it uh, is the age of the White House as the house of the head of state that. Uh, we think of England and the ancient history of, of the Kingdom of England, but of course, as you point out, Buckingham Palace has only been the uh, the, the head of state's house since... 1837. 1837. Right. The Kremlin has its own history that's distinctive. And so although we're a young country, when we think about the grand history of nations, uh, we have this house, which is one of the oldest. It really is, and to me that's part of the, the, the story as well. I mean, people are blown away when I tell them that John Adams, of course, moved in in 1800, 215 years ago, and presidents mm -hmm. had lived in the White House for 37 years before Queen Victoria decided that Buckingham, I mean, the build, Buckingham Palace, the building is older than that, but she <coughs> decided, 18th century, yeah. she decided it was only then that that would be home for the head of state, and people are amazed mm. to hear that. So for, we call ourselves a young country, but we actually have a pretty, uh, pretty long heritage. Well, it, and it speaks to why you have so many things to say on this date, so you have a, a lot, many years to choose from. Well, that's true, and the uh, so what I decided to do when kind of scoping out this book, my agent and I looked at, uh, I mean, look, it's no secret that there are tons of books about the presidents, and there are tons of books about the issues that they were involved with. We decided to add kind of a third dynamic to that, and that's the history of the building mm. itself, how it's grown, how it's changed, the new technology that uh, came in. And as I was researching that, sort of the epiphany that I had was that the growth of the White House reflects the growth of the nation mm. itself. And that was sort of a central theme of the book. So I wrote about um, Thomas Jefferson had sort of first bathrooms essentially with a water reservoir on the top of, of the roof. Uh, running water came in under Andrew Jackson, and I talk about uh, the, tele the telegraph, which played such a key mm -hmm. role during the administrations of Polk and Lincoln, and then a decade later, Rutherford B. Hayes was a friend of Thomas Edison and Alexander mm -hmm. Graham Bell, and, and he brought, to, he, he invited Bell and Edison to the White House to show off their products, not just because he was a high-tech guy, but he knew, it was very savvy judgment on his part, he knew that the attention he would focus, that the attention that would be garnered on these products would speed their integration into the economy, and mm. that's exactly what happened. It's yeah. very interesting. So the White House becomes sort of a stage for uh, modernity. 
uh, in the country or speaks to some aspirational quality of the country. I think that's true. And if you look at the current president, Barack Obama, I mean, solar panels came to the White House actually during the Carter era, of course, and Ronald Reagan tore them down. But solar, but solar energy has really come into its own now. And I think they're probably here to stay now. Mm -hmm. I don't think even if it's a Republican president, I don't think they're going to tear down those solar panels. Mm -hmm. And one reason why the president did that, obviously, was he's a renewable energy guy. And by shining, pardon the pun, shining a light mm -hmm. on these solar <laughs> panels, it will help speed his goal, at least, right. speed their integration into the economy. So it's no different than what Rutherford B. Hayes did with the telephone and, uh, and, and so on. Mm, that's interesting. The, the house has also changed over time in becoming a museum gradually, eventually, I guess, beginning with uh, the Kennedys, or maybe you have a different story about it. Well, the White House actually uh, has nearly been, uh, has survived invasion and fire, and it's also Barely. survived political efforts to mm. tear it down and move it. After the Lincoln assassination, mm. there were security concerns, and there was talk about actually moving the president's house to a bluff overlooking either Rock Creek Park or a big parcel of land well east of the Capitol mm. for security reasons, and Ulysses S. Grant who had spent uh, most of his life living in army tents said, yeah, I kind of like it here, it's pretty comfortable, so I'm going to stay, and the White House uh, stayed. Uh, and then if you fast forward about uh, 80 years or so, uh, the White House nearly collapsed during the Truman mm. era, and uh, uh, the famous story is that he and Bess gave daughter Margaret a piano for Christmas or her birthday or something, and at one point, a leg of the piano actually fell through the second floor, and there were serious concerns mm -hmm. that it actually would, that would literally collapse. And so, at, just after the 1948 election, they came to Truman and said, oh, "Mr. President, you're good. you got to go." And so he moved into Blair House down the road, and they were there for about three and a half years, while they they literally gutted the White House mm -hmm. from the inside. And we've all seen the they put in steel frames and everything and mm -hmm. so they now say that the White House can stand for 200 years I don't know whether that's true or not but it certainly seems pretty sturdy today. Well, we won't be around to find out either uh, you know one of the things that's very nice about your work and, and here at Mount Vernon we're very aware of this is that the home I mean this is a obviously a great symbol uh, it, it's a house of a head of state but it's a home uh, for the people that live there uh, and that the domestic side of things is is a way to reflect on uh, not only the way of life of the people at the time, but really about those people. We think of our leaders sometimes as these kind of plastic figures uh, who are on the stage and do their part, but really they're part of a family. They're part of families that are struggling with their own issues to get by. And by focusing on the family life, we understand their greatness or, or successes and failures in a different light. Well, that's true, and uh, there's a photograph that I deliberately chose to sort of illustrate that, and it's the famous photo of, I think in the 1963 or 62, mm. there's a picture of President Kennedy, and he's in the Oval Office, and Caroline and John are dancing, and the President is clapping, and this is in the Oval Office, and to me, that one picture sort of is a good example of sort of the, the juxtaposition of the president's place of work and his home. Yeah. It's both. And as Ronald Reagan and, uh, and uh, Bill Clinton, I think, and others used to say, well, we get to live above the store. 
And that's exactly what it is. And the current president, of course, whether you uh, agree with him or disagree with him, and it's a divided country, uh, he always tries to make it home for dinner every night when he's in town. 6.30, 7 o'clock, he'll go up and they'll have a dinner, and he wants to spend a little quality time with his wife and his mm. two girls. And I think whether you like him or not, I think uh, he, people can, can relate to that as a family man. Having young, presidents are. Yeah, having young children around you, what a stress reliever that would be yep. if they could, you know, your children to come in the middle of the day when you're busy for them to come in and spend a little bit of time with you. Of course, it can be very stressful to be around uh, teenage children as well as uh, young children. When they're three and four, though. <laughs> yeah, with the Kennedy children are very right. cute there dancing right. around in the Oval right. Office, and I can imagine the, right. the, the just you know, what, what a relief that is in the middle of a busy day to have a moment to spend. Yeah. With your family now, uh, one of the chapters of your your book covers probably the darkest days of the White House, uh, which is the uh, the burning of the house by the British. And since we're early Americanists around here, could you? I mean, you, you really draw out a beautiful picture of that day. What are some of the elements of that story that surprised you when you got into it about uh, you know the invasion of the British and, and how the president and Dolly dealt with it? It was really amazing. I mean, the, the, the history of what led to the invasion is, can be the subject, well, it has been the subject mm. of, of many a book. But as it happened, uh, the British were coming, and James Madison, who was not exactly the, the most uh, formidable commander-in-chief. Mm. Little chief. Jemmy, we call him. Yeah. He was five feet four, the shortest president, did not instill a lot of confidence, and yet he decided that he was going to go to the front, which at the time... It was in the town of Bladensburg in modern Prince George's mm. County. And he went there and his commanders were there. And people said, oh my gosh, it's, it's the president. But that didn't really uh, forestall. Mm. They didn't fight any harder or anything. And as it turns out, the president wound up fleeing, uh, and uh, which didn't exactly help his image too much. Yeah. And by the time he got back to the White House, Dolly had gone. And, but before she left, the real story of what she did was she was up on the second floor in what uh, was called the Queen's Room, and she was scanning the eastern horizon. And Bladensburg was only about six miles mm -hmm. from White House, and everybody could hear the distant thud of the cannon yeah, and such something, yeah. during the battle. So everybody knew that the British were quite close, and so she was being urged to leave. You've got to get out. And she refused until the very end, and even then she said, well, I'm not leaving until we save this portrait of, mm. of uh, George Washington and the very famous Gilbert Stuart portrait. Yeah, the Lansdowne. Yeah. Lansdowne portrait, which today hangs in the East Room, of course, and for people who've never seen that, it is a big painting. It's about eight feet by five. That's yeah, beautiful. It's just a be beautiful painting, and I know in the store down the road here there is a uh, copy mm -hmm. of that, which mm -hmm. I hope to buy. And the, uh, the Dolly Madison said, the British are coming. And she said, well, we're not leaving until we rescue that painting. We will not, cannot allow that to fall into enemy hands. But what they didn't know was that the painting, the, the frame rather, it wasn't just hanging on the wall. It was mm. bolted to the wall. Mm. So a couple of assistants got up there with a hatchet. And they just they literally hacked it out of the frame. Mm put it on the floor, and it was only then that she didn't leave with the painting. 
Yeah. But yeah. Uh, she knew that it had been taken down from the wall, and then she left, and two sort of the two prominent Washington yeah. businessmen, I believe, came and they hauled it away. And it was only then that she fled, but it was really just a heroic act on her part because the British were, were quite close. One of the things that struck me in your telling of the tale that I had, I mean, I knew that the British show up and there's food on the table, but it was Dolly's doing, uh, uh, Mrs. Madison's doing to... Uh, to basically go on as if the day was normal. They were expecting a large party for supper, for dinner. Uh, and so she had the servants put out this huge spread of food, prepare everything with, with drinks in the coolers and warm food on the tables. And uh, so she was trying to have that sort of sense of normalcy, but it wouldn't play out quite that way. You know, she tried to have this sense of normalcy right up to the very end, yeah. and one of the, uh, the slaves in the White House, a man named uh, Paul Jennings, wrote in his own memoirs that they, uh, they put the food out, they had, sort of a, had supper kind of early back then. Yeah, like 3 p.m. or something. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and so the, I think it was for about uh, 35 people or something <laughs> like that. And anyway, by the time when the British came in a few hours later, the food was still warm. Mm -hmm. And so they ate it, and they drank the president's wine, and there was a nice wine. Should have poisoned it. <laughs> well, the other the other thing that's interesting about Dolly Madison is that uh, one of uh, I think the uh, one of the cooks in the White House was a guy I think called French John mm -hmm. John Susan I think was his last name, and he said he came to the first lady and said, you know, we there are these sort of these cannons on the front lawn of the White House. We can kind of rig those to blow up right when these British troops come in. And mm. Dolly Madison was a Quaker, yeah. you know, sort of a pacifist. And she said, well, that's not fair. Yeah. We're gonna fight a war, we're gonna well, do it. So she refused. Goodness knows what they would have done if those if that happened, because yeah. you know they did burn down the building, they burned down all the public buildings. Right. The Canadians, of course, still celebrate the burning of Washington with that big painting they have of it. In that we capital. did it to them first, though. People don't. That's true. We, we burned uh, York, which is current day Toronto first. Mm, well, it probably needed burning, right. uh, but at any rate, right. they probably were happy to have it burned right. to the ground. But uh, still, shocking a behavior by the British, uh, I think. In the, in the uh, so it was really Washington. It was really the worst day yeah. in the history of Washington D.C. It, it comes yeah. through uh, very well in your book, and you talk also about, in regards to that moment, the uh, the aftermath coming back into the the city after it's all been destroyed, and how, how difficult that was for the Madisons to. To deal with. It. I mean, the public relations disaster was one thing, but you know, there's a human toll there as well. He was uh, lambasted uh, as he should have been by the nation's mm. press in some really savage ways. The Bladensburg races is one of my favorite. Uh, there were <laughs> there was graffiti yeah. saying that uh, you know if this had happened to the modern president, one must be impeached or something for mm. national security. Disaster, and it was it was it was a national security disaster. It was a public humiliation for him. The White House was gone, and the Madisons never lived in the White House again. They moved into a place called Octagon House, mm -hmm. about uh, four blocks away. I think it's on the campus of George Washington University now, or Twentieth and I, I think. Yeah, Twentieth and I, something like that. And uh, James Monroe moved in uh, about eight or nine months after. Mm. He was sworn in in 1817, so the Madisons never lived in the White House ever again. Mm. It is a stunning yeah. story. I think in the early, uh, uh, early, uh, early American portion of the book, uh, 
Uh, let's talk about John Adams, the first occupant of the book. What, what is the story that you... So the subtitle to the book, for all you out there who are going to go out and buy it, 21 Presidents, 21 Rooms, 21 Inside Stories. What's the inside story of the first occupant as president, John Adams, Abigail Adams? Well, the story with Adams is that uh, the year 1800 is kind of a tough year for him because... The, the election of that year was, uh, it was really nip and tuck with Thomas Jefferson, his arch rival, fellow founding father, and then they had their political differences and went their separate ways. And he knew that that was going to be a really tough race. He's making his way to Washington from um, Massachusetts. And on the way down, he, despite his political troubles, I write that he was actually, his personal troubles might have been even more mm. disturbing to him because one of his sons was an alcoholic and uh, terrible to his wife and all that. And Adams uh, disowned him, refused to see him on his way down. And so he was just beset with, uh, with uh, personal and political mm. troubles. Uh, that was his mindset. And he moved into the White House and uh, Abigail stayed behind. She came down a few weeks uh, later, he wound up losing the election, of course, to Jefferson. So it was a very unhappy time for him. Uh, but on his first full day in the mansion, which was November the 2nd, he arrived on November the 1st. And his first full day in the mansion, he wrote Abigail a letter. And he was not an overly religious man, but he wrote what uh, historians, Adams historians, say sort of amounted to a benediction. Mm. And he wound up saying, and I'm paraphrasing just to make it short, you know, may none, may none but honest and wise men ever live under this roof. And that's where the title of my book came mm -hmm. from. But those words were so moving that they sort of disappeared into the, sort of the dusty history for about 120 years or so. And then mm -hmm. Franklin Roosevelt stumbled across them early in his presidency, and he was so moved by what Adam said that he ordered them carved mm. into the mantle above the fireplace in the state dining room. And people who go into the state dining room now can see those very words carved into the mantle place. It's really interesting to look mm. at. So that's where the title of the book came from. Oh, that's a fantastic story. Um, so uh, let's talk about the Civil War uh, White House. So what, what is, uh, what's a telling tale of of uh, the nation's home during its, its house-divided era? Well, Lincoln, during the Civil War, had extra security, of course, and but nevertheless, visitors could still go to the White House mm. and see the president. And the crush of visitors was so great, in fact, that the Lincolns, in particular Mary Lincoln, the rooms that they lived in on the second floor, they were really just uh, constricted to just a couple of rooms on the south west side of the mansion and I'll have, a, I think there's a map of that in the book and I'll have that uh, tonight by the way and so Lincoln would sit there and talk to visitors but he actually for his uh, privacy and frankly for his security he would have a secret passageway built leading from his office to the private quarters and that's how he would get uh, back and forth and mm -hmm. in terms of technology coming to the White House Lincoln was early in his presidency he got the first uh, coast-to-coast -coast 
telegram that was sent by the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. Lincoln was so impressed by the speed of that that uh, two days later he ordered the federal government to stop using the Pony Express, mm. which at the time was how you got information out to California, yeah. but it took eight days. Mm. And here's the telegraph that can do it just in a matter of uh, minutes, and mm. Lincoln said, well, I think we can dispense with the mm. Pony Express. And during the war, the speed of the telegraph really played a key role in his management of the war. Mm. And if you've ever seen mm. that, the Spielberg movie, Lincoln, sure. Steven Spielberg yeah. movie, it's very authentic. There's a scene in there, well, a couple of scenes actually, where Lincoln goes over to the telegraph office and he's sitting there. He spent long hours there waiting for these dispatches to come in from the field from his, mm. his uh, uh, generals. And that telegraph room really changed the way presidents dealt with their, their military. James Polk had it uh, too, but Lincoln was really, really widespread under, under Lincoln. And uh, so that was really the big development uh, for him. But the other thing about the Lincoln White House that's interesting that people don't know this is if you look at the modern floor plan of the White House, you'll see what's called the Lincoln bedroom. Yeah, right. Actually, yeah. in the Lincoln era, that wasn't the Lincoln bedroom. That was Famously the, controversial bedroom. Right. How do you stay in it? Who do you pay to stay in it? Uh, back then, yeah. that room, which is today the Lincoln bedroom, was actually yeah. Lincoln's office. Mm -hmm. And he called it the shop. Mm -hmm. And it was this room was really the nerve center of the Lincoln presidency. Mm -hmm. It was here that he met with his cabinet, and he issued the Emancipation Proclamation and so forth. On one wall, he kept the maps of the... It was the, sort of like a war room. His war room office, cabinet room, all rolled into one. Mm -hmm. And he could look out these windows across the South Lawn, across the, the Mall and the Potomac River and all yeah. that. And he could see, depending on the war, he could see Confederate flags flying in the campfires at night. I mean, yeah. the enemy was quite close yeah. at times. And so that was the environment in which Lincoln grew up, that he, he, he ruled in. And in that office, he had a battered desk that he used, and it was kind of a, the desk had some cubby holes and everything. And one of them, mm. He kept all, the, he got a lot of death threats, and he kept the death threats sort of just in one cubby hole, and, uh, mm. and that's where he, he kept them. So the, so the danger was, was, there was clear and present danger for yeah. the Lincoln presidency. Well, Lincoln famously, and of course, is a great uh, interpretation of it now uh, in, in D.C., the Lincoln Cottage. He would leave the White House uh, many times during his presidency, and presidents, I guess, have had these sort of retreats. Uh, I know that's beyond the scope of your book, but you're a White House correspondent, so you might you might have some reflections on how, what role that a presidential retreats have played. Maybe that's the, the next book, but uh, you know, how does that fit into the White House story? You're moving your family around and finding a space to get away from it all. Well, he spent about a quarter of his time, actually, at the Lincoln Cottage, mm -hmm. where people today's critics who say, well... Well, that George W. Bush, he sure took a lot of time down at the ranch. Or Obama, Crawford, always, yeah. always, always playing golf or whatever it is. Well, you know what? Yeah. Uh, my theory is that you and I look forward to our weekends. We work long hours. We have a stressful job. Being president is less. Mm. It's the most stressful job in the world. I don't, and they're human beings. I don't begrudge them a little bit of downtime to mm. recharge. It's mm. very human need. Mm. And so I don't doesn't uh, doesn't bother me a bit if you want to go out and play golf 
yeah. once a week, uh, recharge your batteries, clear your mind. I think it's probably a healthy thing. It doesn't matter whether you ride horses, watch movies as Jimmy Carter did, mm. uh, play golf as Obama did, go sailing. It's, it doesn't matter. I think everyone has to have an opportunity mm. to do that. And yet it's become very politicized now. Yeah. But, the, but, the, but, the, but the act of getting away, John Adams, who we talked about before, took huge amounts of time off, yes, or well, at least away from the White House. Well, in Adams's case, it was a detriment to his ability to lead. Uh, yeah. At that time, there was no telegraph, and when you're in Braintree, Massachusetts, and people are in Philadelphia or in D.C. trying to make decisions, and they're looking around for the president, it can be a little difficult, yeah. I think. And then you can say that there yeah. are presidents who actually took very little time off. Yeah. James K. Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln was a workaholic. Even though he yeah. was uh, at the, the, the soldier's home, yeah. he, he did a lot of work there. They would come to him with paperwork mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. James K. Polk was literally a workaholic. Well, he only he, had four years to do everything he wanted to do. Right? He had four big goals. He yeah. accomplished all four, but he yeah. rarely took any time off. Worked his fingers to the bone. What's your Polk story in the uh, in well, the book? Polk micromanaged everything to a ridiculous degree, and what happened? He dropped dead a couple of months after leaving office. Mm, yeah. So that's the Polk story. And the Polk story is, uh, by the way, we talk about how uh, gaslighting came to the White House for the first time during the Polk years. That mm. was sort of a technological development. It was actually on Capitol Hill first, and they ran a line down yeah. uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House. And Polk thought, this is great. We can light the White House now. We don't need these candles. And Sarah Polk said, no, 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 I kind of like, I don't want gas lighting in here. Mm. And she insisted that one room remain lit by candles because that's what she wanted and that's what she got. Mm. And there's a story in the book about how the first big social event they had after the gas was all you know hooked up and everything, mm. uh, gas went out, all the rooms went dark except for the what is today the blue room that was lit by candles. Mm. So in the end, the wife had, as wives sometimes do, she had the last laugh. First ladies uh, factor, obviously very large in, in your book. Uh, what are some of the, the stories that come to mind when you think of the, the most influential ones? I mean, we've heard about Dolly already, Dolly Madison. Uh, who, who else comes to mind? As a, maybe a figure that people aren't as familiar with as say Jacqueline Kennedy. Well, I think clearly the, uh, the greatest first lady surveys and historians and all of that continue to put uh, Eleanor Roosevelt at the top for a variety of reasons, but uh, others have made their mark in, mm. in, uh, in, in different uh, ways. I think that uh, the story of Edith Wilson, Woodrow Wilson's second wife, mm. is so fascinating. Uh, Wilson's uh, first wife died uh, when he was president, and he was a widower president, mm. and he thought, oh, my heart is broken, I'll never marry again. Well, he met this new woman uh, not too long uh, after that. Yeah. And he was so uh, bent on impressing her mm. that he shared government secrets with her, which today would be Goodness. kind of a... a big deal. Yes. And during, <laughs> and during World War One, uh, Edith learn to code and decode secret messages. Well, well take step back. What do you what do you mean by that? How did she learn? She <laughs> she learned the secret the government had uh, even back then there were codes and secret messages and, and everything and she learned how to send secret messages and decode secret messages. Can you imagine a, mm. like Nancy Reagan or someone doing that? But that's what she did. 
Yeah, but the real interesting story about uh, one of the most interesting first lady stories I think ever, that a lot of people don't know about and I write about, is what happened after Wilson had this crippling stroke mm. in the fall of 1919. It nearly killed him. Uh, and for a long time, he could barely speak, he could barely move. And Edith Wilson, a couple of doctors and a few White House aides, they covered it up completely. Mm. One of the greatest cover-ups in American history. They didn't tell, eventually people found out, mm. uh, just by the president's absence, but they refused to say how bad it was. And so what happened was Edith Wilson took it upon herself to do a lot of work that normally the president would have done, mm. deciding uh, what papers should be signed and uh, things, policy decisions and this and that. Can you imagine? Mm. It was remarkable. So in a way, she was, she was, in effect, the acting president. It was That's just extraordinary. It was extraordinary. It was one of the greatest cover-ups in American history. So th talk about their courtship a little bit. How did that work? I mean, the, you're a member of the press corps. How would it work now? How did it work then? Well, nowadays, nowadays, I don't... Well, now it would uh, be one of the great uh, great sports there's a, there's of the a, entertainment there's, world. There's right? a movie from about, what, 15th of the yeah, American, American president, president. yeah. Michael yeah. Douglas, he's dating... Uh, what's right, name? Uh, what is it? Yeah, Annette Benning. I can't remember the character. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the press was all over it. Well, in in the Wilson, uh, Edith Galt was her, 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 mm -hmm. her maiden name. And at the time, Wilson, well, Wilson's advisors said, well, Mr. President, you know, there's an election year, it was 1915 before his 1916 re-election. Well, we don't think it would look good for you to be, you know, dating so soon after your first wife uh, died. Yeah, and he goes, right. well, I kind of like this woman, so, you know, I'm going to date her. Mm. Anyway, and they nevertheless tried to kind of cover it up because it was an election year, but people still knew about it. Mm -hmm. And there was a mm -hmm. famous story about how uh, Wilson took her out for long drives along the Potomac River and everything. And so people knew oh, it was the president and his girlfriend in, in the car. So it was people knew about it, but they didn't right. really talk about it. And the Washington Post made what is a huge, well, even today would be kind of a huge gaffe because they were talking about how the president was entertaining uh, Edith Galt, except there was a typo, and it came out that the president uh, was entering. No, <laughs> Mrs. Galt. <laughs> and can you imagine oh today they'd be accused of uh, media yeah, bias yeah, or something absolutely. like that? It was just a huge typo. And uh, oh my goodness! So everybody knew about it, but uh, they they really tried to cover that up. So really mm. interesting. Oh, that's extraordinary. Quite a colorful first lady. Uh, Houses are crucially important in, in setting the space, you know, the, the environment for uh, for action. Well, in, in here, of course, in Mount Vernon, we have one of the iconic homes. Uh, we talked about the domestic life, but how does the design of the interior spaces matter in the history that happens there? I mean, how has the interior design of the house changed and been shaped over time, and how has it maybe impacted some of the events that you described? Well, the second floor is really the, the private floor of first family. It's almost always mm -hmm. been that way. And prior to Theodore Roosevelt, uh, presidents actually lived and worked on that uh, floor. Mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt had a big family, wanted extra room and such. So he built what uh, is now the West Wing. 
And ever since then, for the last uh, 12 uh, decades... You know, I just talking policies. Wasn't there a design at the turn of the century to sort of make the White House into kind of like a... Uh, you know, a European style mansion or, or palace, I guess. There was a there was an effort. Palace. There was an effort when Willie McKinley was president to make it. Okay, so I knew it was right around the Teddy Roosevelt time. Huge, big extensions and yeah. this and that. And, and yeah. if you look at the drawings of that, look kind yeah. of you know, gaudy. Yeah, glad that it's late nineteenth century, right? Yeah, and. <laughs> And uh, and the like Colombian exposition style, like massive, it's really unattractive. Yeah. And uh, and the assassination of McKinley kind of kind of ended mm. uh, that. And then when uh, well, T.R. and I'm not surprised Roosevelt immediately built a wing. For he built a wing. <laughs> he built a wing. But I'm glad he put the kibosh on these yeah. other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was just looked uh, horrible. Mm. It would have overshadowed the main mansion itself, and just mm. Uh, mm. so he built uh, um, the, the, the building that is now the. The West Wing, and that gave the first family more privacy on the second floor, mm -hmm. and it's always been that way mm -hmm. ever since. But uh, we talked about before with the Lincolns how constraining it is. It's still awfully constraining, mm -hmm. and many a first family have said that sometimes they feel like they're in prison, even though there's every creature comfort you could possibly want, and, yeah. and this and that. You can't, you can't leave easily. And yeah. Best Truman, for example, Best Truman hated living in the White House. Hated it. Mm -hmm. Happiest day of her life, I think, was when they uh, went back to independence. Uh, mm -hmm. Bill Clinton called it, uh, Harry, in fact, Truman himself called it, I think, the uh, crown jewel of the American uh, penal system. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Clinton called it uh, something like that for just being the great white uh, jail. Well, mm -hmm. I'm reversing the Truman and the Clinton comments, but Clinton used to comment how he would look out the windows of the second floor and see people walking by on Pennsylvania Avenue and, 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 and he thought, I, I wish I could just go out and mm. just go to a coffee shop and read a magazine and get it. These presidents can't do that. Mm -hmm. They can do that, but not with, not with, uh, uh, without a lot of difficulty. They take a whole contingent with them and uh, they just can't do that. Does the press corps have a tendency to come to empathize with the family in ways that uh those of us who are out consuming news and don't really, you know, come to grips with or don't understand. Well, there's a. Uh, or are you just a very sensitive gentleman who? Uh, well, who can, who can see how hard it is to be uh, in this situation. Well, Mrs. Obama uh, early on got really criticized because at one point I forget the circumstances, mm. but she said mm. living in the White House is just hell. Right. And she got ripped for that. Uh, but the broader context is, I think she meant that the security, which is necessary, the security was so stifling and so constraining that uh, it really changes your life in ways that sometimes aren't so good. Mm. Um, and you really have to be president or related to one to understand what she means by that. But the comment itself was really ripped apart. But it really yes. is, from that standpoint, it's quite difficult because for the rest of your life you're never going to have a normal life ever mm. again and so I think that's what she meant by that but there is sort of a Chinese wall today between mm. uh, the kids are off limits and I think people try and respect that there are people who take shots at uh, the kids uh, to, my, to which my response is well they don't have anything to do with uh, yeah. you know they're just two girls leaving them alone well so access uh, speaking of security and the public's access to the White House is really evolved. I mean, it, in some cases early on, it's going to depend on your, the president and, and their popularity and also the way they want to present themselves. But, but it hasn't evolved over time. How do you, uh, how do you see it in terms of 
the people's house versus the you know the security needs or, or whatever. Well, the Secret Service, uh, which obviously calls the shots in that area, they really try and work with the first family tr to try and strike a balance. I mean, the security of the president is paramount. They've lost four presidents. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely paramount, and yet they try and keep the White House open. It's the people's house, as you say, and they try and keep it open for uh, tours, but it's tough mm -hmm. to get a ticket for a tour. You have to go through your congressman and all of that and be vetted and such, and you have to start that process several weeks mm -hmm. in advance. And even when you do go or take that tour, you just see these principal rooms on the state floor. You see the East Room and the other end, the state dining room, and the red, blue, and the green rooms in between. And that's pretty much it, uh, and then uh, off you go. Mm. Um, unless, if you happen to be kind of a lucky group and the president is uh, coming or going on Marine One in the backyard, South Lawn, sometimes they will bring a group out and they'll get to see the, for the helicopter land and take off the president. That is a huge thrill. Mm. If you are on the tour and you get to see that, but of course you're watched every mm -hmm. second mm -hmm. and all of that. But the security is quite stifling, uh, necessarily so, and it keeps getting more stifling. So how different would it have been if you were, say, uh, a resident or maybe a tourist to Washington, D.C. at the time of Andrew Jackson's uh, resident in, in the White House? What would have happened? Well, you could just walk right in, and uh, this <laughs> famous story about uh, the, the uh, on Jackson's own inauguration day, in fact, he was nearly killed, his own inauguration day in the White House by this wild, raucous party. And these were all well-wishers that came to, 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 to party with the new president yeah. and wished him well. And at one point... Well, he, he had was, more duels with his friends than his enemies, I'm probably sure. Oh, he sure did. <laughs> and he, and he was, he was uh, pressed against the wall, couldn't breathe, and had to get him out through a window and everything. So it was quite... I mean, that, that, that doesn't happen today. <laughs> doesn't happen today. It, it is extraordinary to think yeah. about the change in, in, in the one way is it's such a more formal world. Yeah. You know, and in other ways, it's it's less so. Um, yeah. Jefferson was also notorious in trying to be low key in his uh, yeah. in his rituals of state. Jefferson was um, a Republican, which is a different term then than than the way we we interpret that word now. But uh, he was a believer in uh, modesty and simplicity, and uh, and yet. Uh, this man of uh, modest, simple means decided to expand the White House nevertheless when he came in and he built sort of the colonnades which mm. sort of led to what is now the East End, the West Wings, and he put in the first bathrooms and, and all of that. But uh, um, it was nevertheless, it was quite simple and uh, Jefferson was a widower, of course, Martha died I mm -hmm. think in 1782. Yeah. And so he lived uh, pretty much by himself except for his good friend and aide Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame, mm -hmm. who lived down the hall in what is now the East Room. He had a, a kind of walled it off with some basically sailcloth mm. kind of sailing ship. And he had one room for a little workspace and another for his mm. private uh, chambers. And, uh, and that was it. It was Jefferson and Lewis and they would walk down the hall and talk to each other and they plotted the, the, the crowning moment of the uh, Jefferson presidency, which was quite early in his presidency, and that, of course, was the Louisiana Purchase, mm -hmm. and they plotted the whole thing, and uh, then Lewis mm -hmm. went off, and, and that was that. Mm. You know, fascinating. Well, we could sit here all afternoon talking about it uh, with Paul Brandis. It's a brilliant uh, study of 
21 different stories of a, of a, a very old uh, head of state's house. Presidency is that unique office in America which every citizen has a hand in choosing. Uh, and so it will always remain as the the the, uh, the people's kind of the house and and uh, I really appreciate you being with me here today and very much look forward to your talk later on. Well, it's my honor and uh, thank you very much. All right, welcome. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.